Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's Friday morning. I'm going to do something unusual. Um, a fifth talk, because my good friend in Israel, Sam Finkel, was asking me, urging me to do something that I usually don't do, and I guess it must be after he heard the talk about the Romanian Jews and the Holocaust, and Sam lives in Yerushalayim, his parents, like my parents, went through the war, and so he asked me to give a talk on somebody that's not from, which I usually don't do. But Henry Morgenthau was Secretary of the Treasury, saved the Jews in the Holocaust, he writes, and his relationship to Judaism and FDR and so forth, and about Ron Cutler, or true or not. And, um, who usually I don't do, um, what's the right word? But people make requests. It's not like command performances. You know, talk about this person or that person. I don't like to do that. Uh, but, for old friends, I'll make an exception, and it's an interesting topic. I'm really doing this more out of my uh, respect for my friend more than anything else. But uh, anyway, I'll do it. He wants to know about a certain person in Jewish history who was not from, who played a very important role, in, which impacted the from world or others, I might say. And that would be a Henry Morgenthau Jr. Henry Morgenthau Jr. Some of you uh, may know his son who was, uh, for a million years, the Attorney General in, in New York, whatever they called State's Attorney, Robert Morgenthau. And um, there's a lot of legends involved in this, and maybe that's what Sam is asking me. And I can only do, as I always say, I can only tell you how I understand it. And we're going back to the Holocaust and World War II and Hatzalah questions, and who screwed up and who got it right, and things like that. And so, uh, all right, in that, in that way, so I'm going to step out of my usual mold, and do Stama Jewish History Talk. And here we go. Now, um, we're dealing with American Jewry. Uh, Henry Morgenthau was Henry Morgenthau Jr. His father was Henry Morgenthau Sr. Uh, Morgenthau means morning dew, you know. Now, that itself tells you they were dealing with a, with, with a very assimilated, reformed Jewish family. Because who in Judaism calls his kids, you know, Chaim Yankov, Senior and Chaim Yaakov Jr. We don't name, certainly in Ashkenazic circles, after living relatives. So that means you really want to be American if you name your kid the same as you. You know, uh, as they say, Chaim Friedman the first, Chaim Friedman the second. Here's my grandson, Chaim Friedman the third. But again, you have it. Okay? So here, it is an interesting story, but it's very complicated. And I'm not promising to do justice to it, but I'll take a whack at it. Uh, we're dealing with a certain element in American Jewish history. Very briefly, when this country was started, there were 2,500 Jews. That's all, at the time of George Washington. And then between 1830 and 1880, a quarter of a million German Jews poured in here from Germany, Bohemia, you know, let's call them German Jews. And these are the Jews who, by and large, with a few, ex very few exceptions, became not from. 
And out of this started the Reform Jewish movement and, and other things like that. And really, uh, I would say, you know, secular. And the reason is because they came over to this country, they worked hard. You know, the Yekas, they worked hard. And they prospered. And uh, and many of them got rich because the U.S. in the 19th century was a El Dorado of capitalism, you know. In other words, nobody gave anything, but there were no taxes. So, I mean, you know, you, you basically, whatever you made, you kept. And if you worked hard and you got lucky, uh, you know, you need both. Uh, you could become millionaires. Now, it was one of these many uh, German Jews who moved to America was the Morgenthau family. They were from uh, West Germany somewhere, I think from Mannheim, who I spoke about once or twice before. And um, they were rich once, and then they lost their money, and they came to America and, in 1866. And Henry Morgenthau, so no, they weren't from. They were, I shouldn't say that. That's not even true. If you want to get really psychological, the family moved to America. The father tried to make it over here. Um, this is right after the Civil War. He couldn't make it, and he ended up becoming a collector for like shuls and synagogues and things like that, which I'm sure must have been highly humiliating, and I think led his son, Henry Morgenthau Sr., to hate Judaism, although he was Jewish and he married a Jewish woman, and he even belonged to a reform, a super reform temple. But whatever, now, Henry Morgenthau Sr., it's just interesting, was one of those uh, hardworking German Jews who struck it rich in real estate, real estate in the late 1800s. Uh, that's okay. And basically, if I remember the story correctly, I'm not the world's expert on this, but there are people who know less than I do about it. Uh, Henry Morgenthau Sr., he got a hot tip where, to go, where New York was going to build a subway, and he bought up all the cargo. You know? It's like a real, choose real estate uh, dream. So all of a sudden, the value of whatever he bought, because the, the subway was going to be there, you know, quadrupled, quintupled. So let's say he put down $10,000, all of a sudden it's worth 50000 And I'm sure he spent a lot more than ten grand. so it made him a millionaire. And he got involved in other things. So he noticed he's one of those German Jews who struck it rich. Now, to be a rich person at all in America in, in the late 1800s, what they call the Gilded Age, not the Golden Age, but the Gilded Age, that was a time to be rich. Because the country was super capitalist. It was a deflationary, rather inflationary environment. Nobody had money except the rich. Um, and they lived their life O'Reilly. And so our hero, who was born, I don't know, 1890, something like that, uh, approximately, uh, was born in a rich family. So here's a rich millionaire Jew living in New York. They're not from... Um, as I said, Henry Morgenthau Sr. was kind of uncomfortable around Jews. You know what I mean? They didn't want to, he didn't want to block his way of making it in society. But he belonged, and he belonged to the most left-wing uh, temple, that Stephen Wise, the free temple. Stephen Wise used to hold services on Sunday, not on Saturday. And I'll say that he married a Jewish woman and, and, and his kids were Jewish. However, and I think they married Jews too, I believe. Uh... But, uh, you know, they weren't brought up with any Yiddish guy. But they didn't hide the fact that they're Jewish. And so our hero was born in a completely non-from family, grew up in New York City uh, with a silver spoon in his mouth. You know, a guy like this will never have to work. His father struck it rich. He'll never have to work. And I would not say he ever had to work in his life. Whatever he did, he f it's because he wanted to. You know what I mean? I mean, he always had the financial security, which is a nice thing to have if you can get it. 
And um, as I said before, growing up in New York, the late 1800s, early 1900s, and he went, they sent him to fancy boys' schools, you know, as German Jews would do. Like any, in other words, you want to be part of the upper class, okay, to the degree possible. Now, the at that time in America, you had what you call social discrimination. I wouldn't call it discrimination, but if you want to get down and dirty, the uh, fancy schmancy country clubs won't accept you. Now, I don't consider that real discrimination, especially compared to Europe. It's a joke. And what the German Jews did, they created their own parallel universe. So they had richy rich German Jewish country clubs and golf courses and things like that. You know what I'm saying? And if the rich Goyim had, you know, fancy balls and dances and debutantes, the German Jews had a parallel universe. They did the same thing. Okay. Now, Henry Morgenthau Sr., the father, so he sent his kid to all the fancy schools. And I'm sure at the end, I don't remember exactly, he went to Columbia, I know. But, um,. As we'll see, the son had no head for making money, which is kind of funny since he ended up as Secretary of Treasury. He didn't have the father's head for the business. But on the other hand, if the old man makes a zillion, the son doesn't have to have a head for business. <laughs> um, so that's what happened. And uh, uh, the father was very ambitious. He's born in 1856. So in other words, he uh, you know was living in the... Here's a guy in his 50s, and he want, and having made his millions, he wanted to, he was ambitious. There's nothing wrong with being ambitious. How are you going to make it in America? Um, socially, you're not going to be accepted. No, you're not going to be a member of the ritzy ritz, fancy schmancy, uh, you know, New York high society clubs. Maybe you can do it in politics. And so the long and the short of it is, he got involved, the old man, in financing the Democratic Party. That's what a lot of Jews did in order to get a slice of power. That time it was Republican Democrats. The Republican Party had been in power always since Abraham Lincoln. All the presidents from Abraham Lincoln on were Republican. You understand? Uh, from 1860 to uh, down to 1912. Right? Uh, you're all, I would say, conservative Republicans, certainly financially conservative. There was one guy, Grover Cleveland, who was a Democrat, but he was very conservative. A very honest guy. He was a good president, but very conservative. So he's not what you and I today would think of when we see a Democrat. So during this whole time, the Democratic Party was on the outs in the White House. Republicans had all the, the, the plums. Uh, and the time I'm talking about was the age of Teddy Roosevelt and William Howard Taft. They were the presidents from 1900, 1901 to 1912, 1913. And, um, you know, the Republican was the thing to be. So the Democrats was on the outs. So they didn't have money. Now, uh, that's where some Jews like Bernard Baruch and Henry Morgenthau got in. They say, I'll contribute money to the, De to the Democratic Party. Maybe one day they'll you know, win the presidency. Maybe I'll get something out of it. And that's the question. And so Henry Morgenthau Sr., he didn't want to do nothing Jewish, but he wouldn't get involved with the Democrats. He used to be a famous vart, which said like this. I think Josephus Daniels, who was not Jewish, uh, said, Democratic Party is run by Irishmen, Jews, and Southerners, none of whom could be elected president. At that time, you couldn't elect a Catholic. At that time, you could certainly couldn't elect a Jew. And at that time, you couldn't elect a Southerner after the Civil War. And um, there's truth to that. So the Jews, their, their role was raising money for the party. Without money, you don't have no politics. Now, uh, Henry Morgenthau became a big giver and a fundraiser for, for Woodrow Wilson. William Wilson was elected in 1912, 
uh, unexpectedly was a three-way race. The Republicans self-destructed. Otherwise, Wilson would not have won. And he raised a lot of money for Woodrow Wilson. And he expected, now the Democrats are in, he'll get a cabinet post. Right? Now, it didn't happen. Woodrow Wilson was not crazy about Jews at all. And he certainly wasn't thinking that a guy like Morgenthau is the right material for the cabinet. Um, Teddy Roosevelt, a few years before. Should I go through all this? All right, whatever, what the heck. Teddy Roosevelt uh, broke the, was the first president to appoint a Jew to the cabinet. This is interesting. Oscar Strauss. And he made him the Secretary of Labor and Commerce. It used to be two, one big department, Department of Labor and Commerce. Why Department of Labor and Commerce? They were in charge of Ellis Island. You get it? The immigration was part of the Department of Labor and Commerce. And the Jews wanted that they should go leniently on, on the Jews port immigrating to America because that was controversial. And the period I'm talking about, if you Google the figures, you'll be shocked. Over 100,000 Jews per year came to this country. So the numbers ballooned. And a lot of guys didn't like it either. And um, Teddy Roosevelt, by appointing a Jew to be part in charge of Ellis Island and all the Ellis Islands around America, was saying, I'm rewarding my Jewish supporters by you know giving them control of the thing they care about. And it was true, by the way. So a lot of refugees were able to get in despite the red tape because the secretary was a Jew. And Taft, who came afterwards, um, he didn't have a Jew in the cabinet, but he gave it to he gave it to somebody who was a guy, but but was the brother-in-law of Louis Brandeis. His wife was Jewish, named Nagel. And anyway, Woodrow Wilson did not have any Jews in the cabinet. And if he would have, it wouldn't have been Morgenthau. There was one Jew that Woodrow Wilson was in love with. He admired him like crazy, and that was Brandeis, Louis Brandeis. Uh, deservedly so. Brandeis was a genius, and w Wilson held from a belt, and he wanted to put him in the cabinet. But by the standards of that time, Brandeis was considered too radical, too left-wing. The big business looked on Brandeis like Bernie Sanders, which wasn't true at all. But that's how they saw it. And so anyway, Morgenthau ain't going to the cabinet. And so instead, Woodrow Wilson named him ambassador to Turkey, to the Ottoman Turkish Empire. Again, that used to be a certain shtick that when you want, you know, did you want the Jews to vote for you, you got to give them something. So they used to give an ambassador to Turkey. Why? Turkey's a Muslim country to hell with them, you know. It's not like a Christian country. Christians wouldn't like it. You couldn't appoint a Jew ambassador to Italy, to France, to Germany. They'd be insulted you send a Jew. The Muslims, hell with them, you know, send a Jew. And uh, so there, Oscar Strauss had been ambassador, minister to, um, to Turkey. Others had been. So that's what you did. That was like the plum. By the way, the blacks had the same thing. You made him a black guy, uh, what do you call him? Ambassador to Haiti. Minister to Haiti was all black country. So the heck with it, you know. Couldn't send a Negro at that time to European country. God forbid. Send him to a black country. So that's the same thing. The blacks to Haiti and the Jews to Turkey. So Morgenthau was the ambassador. Uh, I think at that time it was a minister still, but maybe it was ambassador to uh, Constantinople. And Woodrow Wilson, of all people, told him, because he was disappointed, he said, I wanted a cabinet. And Woodrow Wilson said, listen, uh, there are a lot of Jews in Palestine. Uh, as a Jew, you'll be in a position to help them. So, that's Woodrow Wilson knew about Zionism. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? And it wasn't not true. It, it was a plus for the Jews who lived in Eretz Yisrael. This is before the First World War. That the American ambassador in Istanbul where the Turkish government is, is a yid. 
even if he's a very un-Yiddish Yid, but he's still a Jew, and, um, you know, and Hanami. Now, the irony, and let me say this, in 1914, this was 1913, Wilson became president on March 4th, 1913. And um, a year later was the World War One, And within a short time, Turkey was in the war. And it is true that Morgenthau Sr., although he was not a Yiddish Yid at all, found himself in a situation where he was asked to help, and he did, you know, the Yishuv, Jewish community in Palestine. I don't want to go too long on this, so I'll leave that just to the side. But he was... He was in the right place at the right time. But what's more important is that he, that at the, in the First World War, uh, that's when they did the first Holocaust. The Turks exterminated the Armenians. If you look it up, you'll see. Many people don't even know about this. Now, it wasn't the same level like the Jews, meaning 6 million, but the, I don't know, 2 million or something like that, they did kill. And Morgenthau protested against it and all this kind of stuff, and the Turks gave him the runaround. Because basically they were looking for ethnic cleansing and the Armenians were not Turkish and without explaining all the history, they made a Holocaust. And uh, he made a whole stink about it and that's his claim to fame. I know the Armenians hold from Morgenthau and whenever they make Armenian movies, they always show Morgenthau in a good way because he called a spade a spade. He says, you're murdering a whole race, you know. Um, so the point is he was an ambassador in a, not a central location, but an important location. And our hero, his son, Henry Morgenthau Jr., was his father's assistant in the embassy. So he had an interesting upbringing. He went to one of these fancy-schmancy prep schools, or several of them. Then he went to college. I think he went to Columbia. But then you have what you call life experience. His father was an ambassador during the wartime. So that, that gave him a certain cosmopolitan. Now, our hero, uh, very briefly, uh, Henry Morgenthau Sr., was ambassador till 1916. Then he came back to America. He was fed up with Turkey. And he was hoping if Woodrow Wilson gets re-elected, maybe this time we'll get a job in the cabinet because he gave a lot of money for the re-election campaign. But again, it didn't happen. And Wilson gave him all kinds of stuff. Brandeis says, you know, he appointed to the Supreme Court, Wilson did. But um, there were no Jews in the cabinet. Now, uh, instead, one of the things he did was, as soon as the First World War was over, there were big pogroms in Poland. I say again, big pogroms in the new Republic of Poland, which just formed. That's a whole Pasha Bifniatsmo. Many people are not aware, as I always point out, that for the Jews, World War I and Eastern Europe went an extra four years. It wasn't simply 1914 and 1918, but it went on from 1918 to 1922 with a separate cast of characters. And during that time, you had unprecedented massacres of Jews in Eastern Europe and uh, all hell broke loose, and the New York Times reported, and so on and so forth, and the Poles denied it, and Woodrow Wilson appointed a Geisha commission with Morgenthau as the official head to go to Poland and check out what happened. And to some degree, I, if I remember correctly, Morgenthau issued the Morgenthau report, we kind of whitewashed the Poles. You understand? He said there were some pogroms, but you have to understand, there was reasons for it. He didn't help the Jews much. He didn't help the Jews much. But the very messiah is that Wilson sent a commission headed by a Jew, the rest were like army officers, whatever, at least send a certain message. And to be perfectly frank, by this time, Wilson was out of it. He had a stroke, he knew it's fine. That's a whole partial by itself. So, my point is that our hero was a young Jew, born with a silver spoon in his mouth, he had the best of everything, and he also had 
practical world experience with his father in, in the Turkish embassy. And now he's back in America. Now, what do you do um, if you can do whatever you want? The answer is, everybody saw he's not going to be successful in business. He doesn't have a head like that. And he doesn't need to. The father made enough money. And so the long and the short is they bought him up. They found out he's interested in um, farming. Can you believe it? Now, by the way, if you're agribusiness, you can make money that way. But, you know, he wanted like a small, you know, a nice-sized farm the way the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant Richie Riches had in New York. And so the father bought him a farm, okay, in Dutchess County. And happened to be, coincidentally, the farm was like next door to Franklin Roosevelt. That's the point I'm getting at. Okay, FDR. They became a neighbor with FDR. Now, an important point is that Henry Morgenthau married a Jew, Eleanor Morgenthau, Fatman. And, but his wife was less Jewish than he was. So here's somebody who never had a Pesach Seder. They didn't keep nothing. They went once in a while on Sundays to hear Stephen Wise. Now, I'll say this. They had a Jewish wedding. Stephen Wise performed the wedding. Uh, no comment. And, you know, that's that part is true. And he had uh, several children. They're all Jewish. But there's no Yiddishkeit in his life. This is a funny world I'm talking about. These are the Americanized second generation, third generation rich you know, Jews, German Jews. I can't even call them reform because it's not like they take reform seriously. That's a madrega. You know, if that's your bag, if that, you know, floats your boat, whatever the expression is, if you take it seriously, seriously and you go to temple all the time and you're involved, okay, that's something. These are people that go maybe Yom Kippur, maybe, for 15 minutes, you know, for Yisker, maybe. And uh, they're all Jewish. All your friends are Jewish. You never mention anything Jewish. <laughs> you see, I know people like that in Baltimore. You get it? All your social circle, they're all Jews. But there's zero, you, you can discuss art and literature and uh, painting and politics and philosophy. Just nothing Jewish. Okay? They, they had an education like that. And the society was. It's like the word, it's like the white elephant on the table. You understand? This is strange, but this is, this is what, if you want to understand these type of people, where it's from. Now, it so happened that because he was next door neighbors with Franklin Roosevelt and Eleanor Roosevelt, they met and they became friends. They became friends. They really did. Roosevelt was from the high, high and fancy uh, old families aristocracy. Roosevelt was doing something incredibly liberal by deigning to make, to allow this Jew to be his friend. But they hit it off. The two wives hit it off better than, even than the husbands and the husbands hit it off. But obviously, it's a subordinate relationship. You understand? In other words, Roosevelt is the guy, and Morgenthau is his, um, you know, faithful and loyal Jewish follower. Now, it's a funny story because they were friendly. Right? They really were. And I mean, they socialized together. He's the only Jew in Roosevelt's social, uh, social circle. And um, Eleanor Roosevelt was very friendly with Eleanor, very, very friendly with Eleanor Morgenthau. And they helped their kids when they were sick. It's all, it's all, you know, it was a real friendship and neighbors. But that's it. And you can be sure that Morgenthau and his wife strained very hard not to act too Jewy. And what I mean is, a lot of Jews, even if they're not from, they have what they call obnoxious social habits. That's the way the guy used to talk about them. There are a thousand novels, Gaisha novels, especially from the upper class. 
what was his name? Um, uh, he wrote Washington Square, the Henry James. We need to talk about the objectionable Jewish traits. Look, what can I tell you? There is some truth to that. Right? Unless he worked very hard not to do anything, you know, obnoxious or offensive. And Morgenthau apparently did that. To him and his wife, they never brought up anything Jewish. And they were genuine friends at Roosevelt. Now, Roosevelt at that time got the polio. And he was out of commission for a while. Couldn't walk for the rest of his life. This is part of the story of Franklin Roosevelt, which is a true story. So you might say that Henry Morgenthau was there um, when Roosevelt, who was tall, dark, handsome, and athletic, all of a sudden became a cripple. And he was there in that part of his life when Roosevelt was determined, he was a remarkable person, to pull himself out of the polio and become president of the United States. That's like 10 years from 1922 to 1932 with a depression in the middle. And so basically, Morgenthau became part of, became part of Roosevelt's team. You know, a Roosevelt loyalist. And he was. And uh, without boring you with all the details, Roosevelt did make a rise, which surprised everybody. In spite of his condition, he fooled the public. You know, nobody knew he was really crippled. They thought it was just like a minor thing. And um, and Morgenthau was there from the from the get-go. Okay? Uh, now, meanwhile, Morgenthau went in the apple farm business. I don't know, it doesn't even matter. Let me say this. Did he make a profit in the farm? He didn't make a profit in the farm. I don't know. He didn't have to. <laughs> get That's the key point I want to get across. If the farm went broke, he'll never suffer. Get it? His father had enough money in the bank. So it's nice to have that kind of cushion. Anyway, Roosevelt got elected, as we all know, in 1932 in the middle of the Depression. Um, he. What about his best friend? You know, uh, let's put it this way. Just like his father, he would like to be in the cabinet. That's a normal ambition. Not going to happen. But Roosevelt gave him a job with the farm because they started the New Deal. And the New Deal had 100 new agencies. The agricultural agencies, the, the, the financial new agencies, the stock market regulation agencies. They used to call alphabet soup. You know, Roosevelt started the FAA and the CCC and the CCB. You know, all those um, regulatory agencies which are part and parcel of the federal government today. Right? Um, the REA, whatever. And so, uh, however... When America, when Roosevelt became the president, America was in depression, and there were many different drachim he could have gone, but he wanted to go his own way, which is a little bit screwball, and whether or not it worked and got America out of depression, it did not, and today there's a lot of uh, literature back and forth, because the trouble is, Roosevelt's a liberal icon, so if you write about Roosevelt, you talk about, you talk about the glass being half full, if you hate Roosevelt, you talk about, you know, like you're a, a Trump guy, a, a conservative, then you talk about the glass being half empty, both of which are true. And when it came to finances, in other words, uh, the big questions of inflation and deflation, so Roosevelt was inflationist, but he didn't want to go too far. And he played around with the price of gold and things like that. Now, he, I don't want to get too technical and it'll get too far off. But suffice it to say that Roosevelt didn't want to do the old-fashioned way of very tight money policy and a dollar should be worth 100% a dollar and all that. He wanted a certain mild inflation. And there's something to that. The country was suffering at that time from a lack of money. The uh, Federal Reserves, were, were, there was too little money uh, floating around, which, which hurt the economy. Now, I just oversimplified, but the point of the matter is 
So Roosevelt had a Secretary of Treasury who's an old guy, and he had an Undersecretary of Treasury, Dean Acheson, and Roosevelt said like this, I think the price of gold should be this. No, I changed my mind 10 minutes later. I think the price of gold should be that. I'm serious. And so forth. And it drove the Treasury guys crazy, and the old guy died, and Acheson quit, publicly uh, resigned with him, because he said, you're doing things illegal. And so Roosevelt needed a new Treasury Secretary, and our hero kind of went to him, and he said, listen, we're good friends, and he he made him Secretary of the Treasury in 1934. So this is most unusual. So he did appoint a Yid at the end, a Roosevelt, and he kept him to the end of his administration. So that means that Henry Morgenthau Jr. got what, a, a job that his father never had, and Secretary of the Treasury is number one or number two in the cabinet. Officially, it's um, Secretary of State. Uh, so Secretary of the Treasury is number two, but Lamaisa just take it from me, especially in those days, Secretary of Treasury was a very important and powerful position. A very important powerful position. Among other things, there were like 100 agencies in the Secretary of Treasury had nothing to do with the Treasury. Uh, he, they, they controlled the, the Coast Guard and the Secret Service and the counterfeiting things. All, all kind of stuff. They had their own like FBI. and It's, it's quite a decoding situation. It's, a, it's quite remarkable. And so here a Jew in 1934 which is when Hitler was already in power, and anti-Semitism was being spread systematically all over the world, and FDR is making a point, I don't give a damn, I'm hiring a Jew. Now, the joke was, I think Will Rogers said this, you got to give it to Roosevelt. He found, to be Secretary of Treasury, he found the only Jew in the country who doesn't know anything about money. <laughs> Which was true, because I just described to you, he wasn't pretty, this was not his forte. He was not his father. In fact, the father, who was 80 years old, said, why didn't he appoint me? <laughs> At least I could do the job. But he wasn't a close friend of Roosevelt uh, the way, you know, uh, his son was. So our hero became Secretary of Treasury for 10, 11 years, which is a long time. Ordinarily, you'd say that's the longest. But there was a guy back in Thomas Jefferson's time, Albert Gallatin, who was there like 20 years. Uh, but it's a very long time to be Secretary of the Treasury. And that's because Roosevelt was elected four times. So Morgenthau was the Secretary of the Treasury from 1934 to 45. Okay, it's 11 years. Now, uh, again, by the standards of the federal government, that's a very long time. That means he was part of Roosevelt's team. But it was clear from day one that he was getting an evidivery out of this. Okay? the relation. I mean, it was clear. The relationship is, I'm naming you Secretary of the Treasury. Based on the idea this way, I'll have a Secretary of the Treasury who does exactly what I tell him. Because usually Roosevelt appointed very strong people to the cabinet. That was his style. And they used to pressure him for all kinds of stuff like that. And he had a lot of hard time with them. Although, he developed all kinds of sneaky ways of pitting them against each other. And he liked that. You know, he was a strange in his administrative style. Uh, this is a double you do So, you know... Like he would have two people appointed to the same job and have them fight with each other. And that way he can be the one who, the final judge. So a lot of his appointees, he were, were not, you know, uh, lapdogs. Uh, but this guy will be. I'm naming you Henry Morgenthau. It's not like you have any support in the Democratic Party. It's not like you represent any state. It's not like you are a powerful guy. I'm appointing you. Your mom should be my evidence. And um, and what he called Morgenthau was totally willing to do this. Now, mind you, he wasn't you know self uh, deprecating or anything like that. 
but he was a strong loyalist of FDR. That's who he was. And so basically their relationship was that Roosevelt kept him for a number of reasons, but one of the reasons was anything I want him to do, he'll do. Now, Morgenthau, a lot of times, was like this. I don't think it's a good idea. It's wrong. I'm complaining. You should change your mind. And Roosevelt might take it off of him. It's a very interesting relationship. And they could argue behind closed doors. But at a certain point, if FDR said like this, listen, I made up my mind, and this is what you're going to do. End of discussion. Then Morgenthau was like, okay. You know, I think it's wrong, but if you say so, I'm loyal to you 100%. And that way, Roosevelt had a guy in charge of the economy, the, the Treasury, who was like totally at his uh, command. So they had a very, it's a very interesting relationship. There are books written on this. And uh, like I said before, he would take criticism from Morgenthau and all that. But he always knew, and it happened a fair number of times. At a certain point, Roosevelt was like, it's end of discussion. This is what we're doing. They just shut up and do it. And Morgenthau would then say, it's okay if that's the end. You know, I'm a cobble. <laughs> that's it. Now, what about the Jewish side? He didn't want to bring up the Jewish side. This is not somebody who had been raised Jewish-Jewish and um, certainly not any connection with the religion. And since Hitler was in power at that time, the Nazis were putting propaganda all the time. So basically, Morgenstern was afraid if he's going to push Jewish issues People would say, oh, yes, you're not American, you represent the Jews. That would be like poison in the 1930s. Be like poison. It had to be, yes, he's Jewish, but he's 100% American. Right? The Jewish is just accent and a birth. This one's Jewish, this one's Protestant, this one's Catholic. It's just a birth. You and I today, living in America that's so much more multicultural in its population composition, can't understand that 100 years ago, 90 years ago, this was a fairly homogenous country. And if you said America has different groups, they would say they mean Catholic, Protestant, and Jewish. They didn't mean, you know, white, black, Hispanic, uh, African, Asian, this and that and the other. You know, the country has become much more um, ethnically diverse. It wasn't that way at that time. Everybody was white, you know, except, of course, for the Negro population. But I'm saying it was a white country and it was a Protestant country. The Catholics were a minority and the Jews were a minority, should have been minorities. And so uh, Morgenthau, as I said before, you know, felt he's, not, he's walking on um, on a thin uh, uh, wire. And he was very careful, you know, to say, like, I'm just American. Now, I don't want, I'm not going to say in a obsequious way or in a self-hating way, because that's not true. Uh, but he wanted to emphasize the American side. And let me say this. He ran a very honest Treasury Department, a very Yashua stick you know, and he was very careful to use our language. I think he was very careful never to make a chil Hashem, which is a good thing. All right. He was connected with no scandals, nothing like that. You know, people say like this, listen, he's Jewish, but okay. You know, he's running, he's, he's keeping basic responsibility. And he knew, of course, that he wasn't a financier or anything like that, but he hired experts. You know, everybody knows if you know that the Treasury Department has a bunch of experts already. They do. And he, and he brought on people on board. And I would say, in general, most historians would say they was pretty good as a secretary of the treasury. Um, but the Jewish side was not his thing. However, it's impossible for the Jewish side not to be your thing if it's the 1930s, because Hitler was getting bigger and bigger, and the persecution of the Jews is getting worse and worse. And uh, here's the thing. What do you do about it? Now, Roosevelt, like many Americans... 
What are you going to protest against Hitler uh, persecuting the Jews, discriminating against the Jews? You can't do that. Why can't you do that? The Americans did the same thing to the Negroes, to the blacks. Right? You have discrimination laws. In America, you had discrimination laws. This was the ugly truth. You get it? You know, you're killing out these people. Well, you killed the Indians, Hitler said, which was true. So this is the dynamics that was going on at that time. And so although the American Jewish organizations said from day one, why don't you protest against Hitler, this, that, and the other. But, you know, the country wasn't in the mood to do so. And there are debates about this, and maybe, you know, another president might have handled it differently, but this is the way Roosevelt was. Now, um, it was a disappointment to his Jewish followers, but they wouldn't admit it, because um, during the 1930s, more and more people went along with the fascism, and even the democratic countries wouldn't say anything for Jews. And Roosevelt was the only person who clearly stood for democracy and was clearly opposed to Nazism and fascism, Bashita. Now, in the second Roosevelt administration, which was from 37 to 41, he was re-elected, of course. Uh, let me say that uh, uh, the Jewish question got worse because, uh, you probably don't notice, but Hitler didn't come into power implementing the Holocaust from day one, killing the Jews. From the time Hitler came into power till the First World War, from 33 to 39, there wasn't much violence, physical violence against the Jews, but it was legal violence in Germany to Jews who were living in Germany. So that's their own business. But little by little, you know, in the in 30s, Hitler took over Austria and Czechoslovakia, or the Czech part. You can see it's getting worse and worse. And he was ratcheting up the violence against the Jews. Kristallnacht, for example, was in 38. And so, what do you do? Now, we all know the American Jewish community leadership stunk. This is a major part of our story, but that's what it is. They don't want to rock the boat too much. And the problem was, Nebuch, what do you do with all these Jews who Hitler doesn't want and they have nowhere to go? Because America at that time had the quotas. The quotas were put in there to keep the Jews out. It's called the Johnson Act of 1924. I'll say it again. The quotas were basically enacted to keep the Jews out. They got sick and tired of 100,000 Eastern European Jews coming here all the time. And the attitude was, there's too many Jews are here already. And so, although they didn't say it befeish, but everybody knew... Obviously, when they passed this law in 1924, what they're saying is only a few thousand can come a year and uh, they don't want a lot of Jews. But on the other hand, now Hitler is creating a situation where every country takes over. The Jews are in a desperate situation. So you need a place for these Jews to go or you just want them to get killed. So Roosevelt, and I was always telling us, no, 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 we have to find a place. But he himself undermined it because he appointed the president of uh, Hopkins, where I teach, I forget the guy's name, Claude Bowers, you know, to be the geographer and figure out where he send the Jews. And they came with all kind of mashugana plants. Let's send them to the Amazon jungle. Let's send them to Cucamonga, you know, to uh, Portuguese, uh, what was it, Angola or something like that. Crazy ideas. You know, I remember Rhodesia was a thing. Uh, is is a, See, this is an argument for Zionism. Right? There was a time when it was Jewish homelessness and therefore Jewish helplessness, and the Jews were screwed. And to use language that you will understand without me giving a whole schmooze, remember the, the ship that tried to get in America, they wouldn't let them in? So that's just emblematic, the St. Louis. That's just emblematic of the whole problem. Nobody would, would, would take in Jews. And this was true until 1945. 
Uh, Hitler many times said, Goebbels said, if you want the Jews, I'll give them to you. Raise your hand. Which country will send you all the Jews? You don't want to make, kill six million Jews? No problem. I'll send the six million to your country. Raise your hand. Who wants the Jews? And, you know, all the countries said, no, not us. Not I. You get it? This is a sad fact. I'll say it again. Hitler said many times, you want them? I'll give them to you. But you don't want them either. You see, you phonies? So that was a good point of the Hitler propaganda. It was. Now, the U.S. didn't want it. Matter of fact, the vice president said if the issue was revisited, the Congress will close down totally the immigration. There won't even be a few thousand left. So, you know, don't rock the boat. And Roosevelt was not interested in rocking the boat on the immigration issue, and neither was Morgenthau, because the country just didn't want it that time. They didn't want to let anybody in, right? They weren't in that mood, besides the Depression. They don't want more Jews. I'm saying kill them, but I don't want them. Now, the Zionists said, what about Eretz Israel? Well, the British wouldn't let them in. That's the time of Intifada. You know, the, theoretically, in a perfect world, you would have said, okay, that's what that's what Palestine was invented for. He had the Balfour Declaration. Send the six million Jews, or whatever you want to call it, to uh, Israel. That that would have been the perfect solution. But that wasn't in the cards. So if you can't go to Israel and can't go to America, where are you going to go? So the Jews had a terrible time. And Morgenthau, from time to time, you know, would say to Roosevelt, what about this idea? What about send them here, send them there? And, and you know, Roosevelt would say, nah, I'm shooting it down. Okay, I'm backing off. Just a suggestion. Just a suggestion. So my point is, he wasn't completely impervious to the Jewish situation, but he couldn't put himself out to look like he's the Jewish, you know, he's like the Mesholach in the cabinet. You know, he, he didn't want to do that. Uh, he felt that would undermine himself. And so, as I under, as I read it, the way Morgenthau expressed his Jewishness, because he felt this, okay? And I read once and once they started going to the temple, uh, you know, once or twice a year, which was a shock, you know, for that time. His wife, Eleanor Morgenthau, she wouldn't have zero to do with any religious. She was always... She was always saying, stay away from Jewish stuff, don't have anything to do with stuff. She was Jewish. You know, but she was like the worst type of Reformed Jew of that era. You know, uh, I shouldn't say Reformed Jew because it's not a matter of Reformed Judaism. She was the worst type of German Jew, you know, from those rich, rich families. They were Jewish, but they wouldn't have nothing to do with anything Jewish. You know, and uh, and she went around with Eleanor Roosevelt everywhere. They were best friends, but, you know, never bring up your Jewish side. So she was a bad influence. Uh, but that's what it was. Now, he was more Jewish than that. The way he expressed his Judaism was in the following. You're dealing with the late 30s. Hitler was getting bigger and bigger, taking over more and more, you know, like I say in 1938, 39, taking more and more. The United States was um, isolationist, and they didn't want to get involved in any kind of European politics. There's a whole reason for that, well, I won't go into now. And they didn't want to get involved with the whole Hitler business. Let the Europeans handle it. And as a result, there was a strong movement in this country not to build up the military. The U.S. had a tiny, tiny military. The whole U.S. Army was 110,000 men. You hear what I just said? Uh, which is crazy. Or maybe I'm wrong, maybe 170,000. But the point is, that's nothing. Um, the country did not want a military. If you get a military, you'll use it. We didn't have an Air Force. Only the Navy was uh, not too small. Only it was also not big. Roosevelt was a Navy nut. You know, that's who he was. He had been assistant secretary in the Navy. But even the Navy was small. And so America is not ready, even theoretically, to resist an attack by Hitler. I'm not saying Hitler was planning an attack at that time, but Hitler. 
And so Morgenthau uh, used his influence as Secretary of Treasury to try to help financially, militarily, those countries that are opposed to Hitler, like England and France and all that, and also to try to build up the military in America. Okay, he actually played a very important role in this. Now this is, again, I could go on and on about this. Roosevelt had a Secretary of War. It was a crazy situation. He had a Secretary of War who was anti-military build up. He had an Assistant Secretary of War, Louis Johnson, who wanted to build it up. The, t the Secretary and the Assistant Secretary fighting all the time. Roosevelt playing off against the other. It was a dysfunctional situation. But that's the kind of nut that Roosevelt was in some ways. But that way he kept control. So our hero kept saying like this, you know, you should appoint uh, this and this guy to be a good general, and you should try to get more money from the Congress to build this up, and that, and the others, and develop an air force. You can't have an, an army and air force without the military industries. And so he was very involved with getting the Treasury to give special credits and junk like that for new airplane companies and new tank companies, you know, that sort of thing. So there are people who have written on uh, Morgenthau's uh, strong activities for American defense. See what I'm saying? It's not a Jewish thing. It's American defense. Obviously, the reason he's pushing American defense is because of Yid. And he understands the threat from Hitler the way the American government don't understand the threat from Hitler. But Roosevelt did, and it's famous. The State Department didn't like this. They say the Treasury Department is always interfering in foreign policy, but that's goof of Roosevelt. He said, well, the Secretary of State, I'm not so crazy about Cordell Hall, He's like a weak guy, although his wife was half Jewish. Uh, her brother, who was full Jewish, lived in Baltimore, Maryland. But Mor I'll use Morgenthau. So he did things that are somewhat illegal, selling planes to the French, and uh, so that America would then have factories building up planes. I don't want to go into too many details. He was very active in, in the establishment of national defense. When World War II broke out, there was still a lot of isolationism. But at least they started little by little building up. Morgenthau, if I remember correctly, was one of the main guys who pushed that Roosevelt should appoint General Marshall because he said he's the only capable general to build up the army. And Marshall was the one who did that in World War II. And, uh, and, he, and he said to Marshall, you know, you need any help, you come to me, which he did do many times. And therefore, Morgenthau was very important in the American national defense effort until 1945. Now, you can say like this, that's not a Jewish thing. Well, it is in the sense that you need a strong America to counter Hitler. It's not a specifically Jewish thing. You know what I mean? But the idea of pushing the American national defense, and eventually, in the middle of 1940, when Hitler overran France, which shocked everybody, and he almost took out England, you know, that's the Battle of the Blitz. So then that shook up whole America, and uh, then they went, then Roosevelt got his money, and then this country started building up like crazy, the military. You know, same with the factories and everything like that. And people, by the way, the story of American industrial buildup to create the Army, the Navy, the Air Force is an incredible story. Uh, people don't know this. By 1944, the war was not over. We were overproducing. <laughs> you get it? In 1944 already, the American built up so much, the factories... They had so many, they had more planes than they could handle. So if you were out in the Pacific and a plane had a flat tire, they just threw it overboard and got a new plane. Um, American production won the war. And Morgenthau was a big part of this. Now, 
at the same time, the Holocaust was starting. He had nothing to do with that. But he's building up the American um, uh, power. And it, I think, as everybody knows, it, and incidentally, because he saw the Japanese as being like pro-Hitler, so Morgenthau helped the Chinese. He, a, he, he gave him a lot of money in the 30s. He did all kinds of things to help the Chinese. And to him, you know, the Japanese and the Chinese is like the Jews and the and the uh, and the Germans. So he played a very important role in in national politics. <clears throat> Roosevelt, of course, was elected a third time in 1940, and that was when the war was. When Pearl Harbor broke out, the United States got into the war. Obviously, by the way, Japan bombed us, and so Roosevelt said, "If you listen to his speech, he said we didn't declare war on on uh, Japan." As a result of Pearl Harbor, a state of war now exists in Japan. It's like, move on Me'elov, uh, but not Germany. Hitler did him a favor in the next day or two. Hitler declared war on America. You see? Otherwise, I don't think Hitler, Roosevelt could have gotten the declaration war against Hitler. So he played into the hands of, of Roosevelt and Morgenthau. And uh, then during World War II, Morgenthau had his hands full, raising the money, the zillions, to build up this gigantic, uh, you know, run of war. And America did incredible things. We not only built up two, you know, on two fronts, the Atlantic and the Pacific, as I think everybody knows, but they kept Russia afloat. They kept Britain and the British Empire afloat. They kept everybody afloat with the monies. So the needs for running a, a uh, economically, World War II, from the American point of view, was a very complex business. And Morgan pulled it off. Uh, again, I don't want to go into details too much, but he did the war bonds and all this other kind of stuff. He, he he did what's considered a pretty good job as far as running the war, even though obviously we ran up a, a big debt. Uh, and there's inflation issues. And like I said, this is not a, a lecture for the graduate school. He was a very important person in running a Secretary of Treasury in raising the money and, and running a lot of things during World War II. Okay, that's the Geisha side. Meanwhile, the Holocaust has started. When the war broke out, 1939, so the American Jewish community, they had no idea what Hitler was going to do. He was going to systematically kill all six million. Right? Um, and, and every other Jew in the world, if he, if he could. They had a vague idea. They had a Lemaisidic idea. When Hitler invaded Poland in 1939, which he took over in a month, less than a month, he didn't say, let's round up all the Jews and kill them. He said, put all the Jews in a ghetto. And here and there, he shot a few here, shot a few there, but nothing systematic at all. And the ghettos are obviously bad situations. People start dying there from bad conditions, but relatively speaking, small numbers. Uh, I want this to be clear. So by 1939, 1940, it wasn't 100% clear which way the war is going to go. When Hitler... Um, invaded Poland, which he did based on miscalculation. He figured that England and France would not declare war on him for that. And when they did, he was angry, but Hitler was the type of person who was incapable of, of saying, I made a mistake. And so he said, well, what we're going to do is uh, we'll, we'll um, win the war, we'll knock out France or something like that, and we'll get a peace. You know what I'm saying? So when he... Uh, went to war in 1940 and took over France and bombed England, he was sure that the British will make peace with him. And then he didn't want a long war. 
you know, things to go back to normal. And what exactly will happen in Poland and the Jews, <clears throat> he wasn't 100% sure himself. Right? And meanwhile, he divided Poland with him and Stalin. So it was a very complicated story. Now, if the British hadn't put in Churchill, it's very likely they would have made peace with him. But since they made Churchill, so Churchill said from day one, the basic policy is no peace with Hitler, zero. Nothing. Okay? And he stuck with that Churchill. That's why he's a great man. He said, we're resolved to destroy Hitler and so forth and so on. And, you know, that's what he did. Now, that really bothered Hitler because, you know, he wanted the war to be over already. And the reason I'm telling you this is all this affects how he's going to relate to the Jews. And as time went on, he saw he's not going to beat England so fast. And so then he, and he but still, he, he owned already Poland. So he had several million Jews under his control. But what exactly do you do with him? Like, is he going to give Poland back to anybody? Or is he just going to go anywhere? He wasn't 100% sure. But then, as 1940 turned into 1941, Hitler made up his mind, the only way you're going to beat England is by wiping out Russia. And so, he famously made a surprise attack on Stalin in June of 41, uh, which is six months after Roosevelt started his third term. And I would say... That's when the Holocaust, as you and I understand it, really, really starts. Because when Hitler invaded the East, when he invaded Stalin, so it was a huge front running all across Europe. Again, you have to get your Google Maps. And you'll see one gigantic front from the uh, Baltic Sea to the Black Sea. And that's where all the Yidden lived. And by this time, he worked himself up to a frenzy on the Jews. And he said, when you invade Russia, the Soviet territories kill all the Jews and all the communists. And this is when, so in other words, this invasion started in June of 41. Uh, that means the Germans were, from their launching points, overrunning uh, Poland, Lithuania, Latvia, Eastern Poland, Belarus, Ukraine. That's where all the Jews lived. And this is where the Jew, this is where the Hitler guys shot a million and a half Jews. And now somebody told me the other day, maybe a little higher even, 1.7, something like 1.8. Say so shot. You understand? Says so the, the the concentration camp didn't exist yet. The gas chambers didn't exist yet. They said they figured they'd shoot everybody. And that's when um, you know, like they took everybody in tells and shot them. They took everybody and hit this place and shot them. I've spoken about this before. Or I did a, a series on this actually last summer. Uh you can look on the YouTube if you want. By the Jews in Lithuania. They just shot everybody. All right? I'll say it again. They shot it between June and December of 41. They shot at least 1.5 million and maybe more. Now, let's just talk about this for a second. We use the number. All this matters. I'm doing this for a reason. Um, we're talking about the number of uh, 6 million. How do you get to that? It's, it's, it's not clear. How do you get to that number? It's, you're playing with numbers. Uh, I asked a friend of mine who I like, uh, uh, Professor Robert Shapiro, He's at Brooklyn College. He lives in Baltimore. He's at Brooklyn College. And he's a Holocaust uh, professor. That's his thing. I say, give me the numbers exactly according to the latest information. Because the uh, just like with the corona, the data is changing the more they find stuff in the Russian archives and whatever. Which is interesting. And calculate uh, your numbers roughly in the, fo roughly in the following way. Um, who did Hitler kill? Well, he had 3 million were killed in the death camps, where they put people in the gas chambers. That came later. So Auschwitz, partly. 
uh, Belzec, uh, Treblinka, Subibor, those Mindenek, those kind of places. You know, you got off the train, went to the gas chamber. Done. That's three million. And then I just told you another one and a half million or so was shot. So that's three million plus one and a half is give you four point five million. And then uh one point five million. And then how many people died, you know, in the Warsaw ghetto, these other large ghetto from the sickness, the typhus, the starvation. You've seen some of you have seen the movies, you know, I mean the um videos, the documentaries of people uh, skinny and starving to death in Warsaw Ghetto. So how many of those did you get? So he he told me a figure of 600,000, which was interesting to me. So uh, that means to see 4.5 million and then 600,000 give you 5.1 million. And then the Romanians killed 400,000. See, when you say 6 million, you don't only mean Hitler, you mean Hitler plus Antonescu, who I spoke about last time with the Romanians. Germanians killed 400,000. Then they protected the other 400,000 in that screwball scenario that I described the other day. But they, meanwhile, they also did kill 400,000. That's a lot. So I just put you five and a half million. I put you five and a half million. So it's not six million. This is where it gets funny. They'll say, well, you know, a couple hundred thousand Jews were killed fighting Hitler in the Russian army and the Polish army, all the rest of it. Do you call that the Holocaust exactly? I don't know. You see what I'm saying? You know, you're fighting in an army. It's not typically what we mean by the Holocaust, but maybe. And it's also true, uh, and I'm going by what Professor Shapiro told me yesterday, emailed me, that when I said 1.5 million, some say it's, it's bigger than that. 1.78 million, maybe 1.9 million even. If that's the case, then you're talking about 5.8, 5.9 million. You see what I'm saying when you talk about these figures of the Holocaust? It's Vensuch. You know, are you meaning direct? You mean indirect? You including the Romanians in this, whatever. So we mean in general terms. Now, if this is unclear today, imagine how unclear it was in the time of Morgenthau and the 1940s, and it wasn't clear to Ryan Cutler or anybody else. You, you see what I'm saying? Or Paul, it's not even 100 percent clear to us today when you get down to the nitty gritty. Uh, it certainly wasn't clear at that time. Now, as far as so, so now I know I'm going to address my uh, remarks to the strictly Jewish side, especially the Orthodox, because that's what Sam Finkel was interested in. And I imagine most people listening to these kind of podcasts I'm doing now, they're into in the from angle, right? Now, you know, the famous expression, uh, uh, victory has a thousand fathers and defeat is an orphan. So listen well. Uh, when the war started out, so you had American Jewry, Hold on, I have to switch this. Okay, where was I? So, imagine I'm looking at the Jewish angle, especially the from angle. When World War II broke out, which is the beginning of um, Rosh Hashanah time in uh, 39, beginning of September, that's when Hitler invaded Poland. Remember, nobody knew how long it's going to be and it's going to spread all over the world and all the rest of it. So, um, the American Jewish community wasn't sure exactly what to do. Because it's an overseas business. They had the Joint Distribution Committee, which gave out the tzedakah and kept the food kitchens going. And, you know, obviously they can't operate in um, wartime conditions. And Hitler wouldn't have nothing to do with any Jewish organization. So they have zero entry into there. Hitler considered the Jews, as he put it, a bacillus. They're like the poison in humanity, and I'm doing a favor getting rid of them. So the Jews in Poland itself were mama screwed. They couldn't get anything in there. Um... What about the from? 
I bet you some of you know that they ran a lot of yeshiva guys and stuff like that ran away from Poland and maybe made it into um, Lithuania. They immediately started Devada Sol. The Rebelezer Silver and some others. You had used to have in this country. And I never went into this when I talked about Rebelezer Silver. I only did part one. Now that I'm thinking here, maybe I should go back and do that. So I didn't explain it. But uh, already before the Second World War, you could see things are not great. Chaim Meisner and others in Poland, Vilna was part of Poland, they said, you know, you better be ready for a Vatatsola of some kind. But Vatatsola meant that, um, not to save 6 million Jews, because 6 million Jews were not in danger in 1939. Nobody knew it. And they're not out to save all the Jews from Poland from the German army. How are you going to do that? What, how are you going to do that? And so what they meant was... Um, Vada Sol to save the B'nai Torah. Uh, the Jewish community at that time was very fractionated as it is now. And each group within the Jewish community was uh, partisan and uh, was interested in its own, in helping its own particular chalik of the Jewish community, I'm sorry to say. And so let's say, for example, you're the Jewish uh, labor Zionist. Well, you want to get your labor Zionist leaders out of Poland and get them to the United States or to Israel. You can't save six million, you can't even save all Jews of Poland, but you want to get your elites out. This guy was the head of the labor Zionist this, and that guy was the head of the labor Zionist that, that lady, that man. Let's say you were um, uh, some Jewish artist group. I want to get the artists out. Like uh, Varian Fried did, you know, get out this famous Jewish uh, writer, and Chagall. You understand those? They're, they're getting a tiny elite. What about the Hamonam? There was nobody representing them. So each group wanted to get its chalik, its elites out. You know, I'm sure the Jewish communists wanted the communists out. The Bundes wanted the Bundes did want to get the Jewish Bundes out. The leaders, you understand, the the, the, the elites, uh, and so forth. The reform movement tried to get some reform rabbis out. You know, that that's what you do. Uh, so so the from did that. So the Vada Rabbanim, I'm sorry, the uh, the, the what do you call it? the Agudas Rabbanim? was primarily what I would call a Litvisha rabbinical organization, primarily. And so, therefore, they're interested in the Litvisha yeshivas and the Litvisha rabbanim, okay? Um, there, there were some Hasidim in the uh, Godus Rabbanim, but mainly it was dominated by the Litvisha types. And indeed, some of the Rebbes who were in America and, and who escaped, they started the Agudas Admorim, you understand? Because there's Agudas Rabbanim and Agudas Admorim, because they said, we, we want our organization who prioritize our people. You know, Lubavitch was interested in getting Lubavitch Rebbe out. That's what happened. I'm not saying it's a good thing. You know, I'm saying this is what happened. And so what they concentrated on was trying to um, help the B'nai Torah population. So the ones that ran away from Poland and made it to Lithuania, which was a, a neutral country at that time, to send money to keep the yeshivas, like, you know, uh, Mir and whatever, which had been in Polish and now ran away to Lithuania and places like that, keep them afloat. And there's a whole story connected with all that. My point, though, is, and I'm not going to that story now, my point is that they were concentrating, as I say, on saving their elites. And, um, of course, as 1941 went by, you know, it, 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 things got worse and worse. And so groups like the Barat Sala and, the, you know, the, the Tzire and all that, they started to say, well, let's get Reviron Cutler out, let's get this one out, let's get that one out, the Tells Russia she was out. And they did. You understand? But notice they got Yechidim. Now, um, nobody was thinking, like, how are you going to save all the Jews in Poland? 
The thought was, as best as I can tell, there's nothing we can do about that right now. Hopefully the war will be over fairly soon, and then we'll try to confront the situation as we can, you know, as best as possible. But they were overwhelmed by the events. They were like a deer in the headlight, I'm sorry to say. Now, the Holocaust that I just described before really started, listen closely, I'm about to tell you, in terms of the big killing, from June to December of 41, they shot one and a half to two million people. They shot them. Then at the beginning of 42, is right after Pearl Harbor, Hitler was so angry that America, you know, provoked him to getting into war. That's when they had the Wannsee Conference and they made up his mind, we're going to exterminate all the Jews in uh, in Europe and we're going to set up industrial slaughter, the gas chambers, which worked very well, I'm sorry to say. So in 42, like starting from January, you know, all through 42, that's when they built up the machine to kill all these Jews in mass slaughter and they did do it. So during 42, that's when you had millions getting killed. By the end of 42, there weren't many left. I mean, they killed the Jews in, in Poland, of course, but they brought from Holland, from Greece, from this place, from that place, you know, about hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands. Well, pretty soon you're talking about millions. It's all happening during 42. Now, America just got into war at that time, and the, it, it, the public didn't know about this, and uh, the Aguda didn't know about this. They started getting reports because you can't hide a thing like this. Start getting reports here and there and there and there. But, and, and you know, this is a, you can read the Recha Sternbuch book about this. She got the news out and other people got the news out. So in other words, in the middle of 42, you started to get cables from Europe to America. The, the, the State Department got it from its people. The Jewish groups got it from their people. You know, this is unusual, it's happening now. The Germans and Mamash, you know, Taf Vinashim, the mom is carrying this out. Okay? They didn't even know yet that the Germans had shot one and a half to two million people back in June to December of the previous year. You, you get what I'm saying? Notice American Jewry did not know, including the, the Aguda and the others. They just didn't know. They didn't realize that by the time Pearl Harbor came, all of Lithuanian Germany had been exterminated, or, or, or 85, 90%. You see, and same thing with Latvian Jewry, and Minsk, and Belarus, and Ukraine. They didn't know. Uh, so in other words, a big part of the Holocaust was already done, I'm sorry to say, before America even got into the war. And it took another year or so, more or less, for this to start to sink in the heads of the American Jews, including the from. What's Mamish going on? Again, it's easy for you and I to sit here with hindsight, and we have all the Holocaust documentation, and now we know this is a double pusher. It didn't sink in. I'll say it again. You started to get reports, from reports and non-from reports, from governments and whatever, the Polish government in exile. You know, the Germans are carrying out something amazing. They're getting trains. They're rounding everybody up. They're taking them to places. And they're mass murdering them with the gas chambers. You understand? You're talking about tens of thousands of Jews getting killed every single day. But to hear it is one thing, and to say, is this really true? Is it exaggeration? It, 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 it didn't get in their heads. Now, it should have. Okay? It should have. But it didn't. And as far as the, the Allies, the Americans, the British, and the Russians, but the Americans and the British, they started getting this, these reports. Matter of fact, Churchill's people had broken the codes of the 
German, uh, you know, uh, security police. Uh, the, they couldn't break the codes of the army, but they could break the codes of the Holocaust guys. Uh, so they knew. But let me put it this way. They didn't, want, they didn't want to come out with it for a whole bunch of reasons. One of the reasons to come out is what are you going to do about it? They don't want to get involved in asking that question for a whole bunch of reasons. Here's a very important point. Um, when Hitler, by the time you get to Pearl Harbor, so Hitler was now facing uh, Soviet Union, British Empire, and the USA. How's he going to win? You know, how are you going to win? Germany's just not that big to take one and conquer all three. The only strategy for Hitler at that point was to prevent being prevent losing. You can't win. You're not going to wipe out Russia, and you're not going to wipe out America. You're not going to wipe out the British Empire so easily. So instead of offensive, it had to be like a defensive. Now, how are you going to win? Um, Hitler this is a very complicated subject. So I guess I'm just dumbing it down, but that's what I have to do to make it as clear as possible and the simplest words as possible. Uh, but what was Hitler's plan? Suppose you're Hitler, and now it's the beginning of 42. What exactly is the plan? Now, he hoped against hope to knock out Russia that year, and if that didn't work instead, the Germans got wiped out of Stalingrad. So maybe he persuaded himself, you know, they'll be able somehow to knock out Russia. But even if he knocked out Russia, he'd still have America and England to take advantage of, I mean, to fight. And so the most you can do is not lose. Um, in his best plans, the Americans and British will will make peace with him and let him hold on to his conquest. But the Evid, the Americans and the British will make peace with him and he'll have to give up some of his conquests. You understand? But the Evid, but the Evid, he'll have to go back to where he started at the very beginning of the war. But he'll still be in power. And I'm sure a guy like him, you know, figure, get to Kanesa. Later, I'll figure another way to, 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 re, to do it better, to conquer better. And he modeled himself on Frederick the Great. And Frederick the Great, back in the 1700s, had this situation. And although he had very, very tough time, at the end, he got away with what I just said. His enemies did not defeat him. He was able to hold on to his basic conquests. And uh, and uh, he was able to be, uh, you know, one of the great figures in the German history. And Frederick the Great faced a big coalition against him, similar to the, the allies against Hitler. And at the last minute, one of the countries changed, Russia. And, you know, Hitler believed against hope against hope that this will happen to him. I'm just trying to give you the, the mentality over here. So... How are you going to make it that you that you you're not going to be defeated by the allies? They overwhelm you in strength. How are you going to make it? So there's two hopes. Because if you don't understand it, you don't understand anything. First of all, maybe I can persuade the allies that you're really fighting a war you don't have to fight. You're doing it for the Jews. Let's say, for example, America. Hitler would say to an Americans, "What are you fighting for? I'm not against America. I only declared war on you because you've been hostile to me. Roosevelt's been sinking my ships." If you read Hitler's Declaration of War Against America, it's a Declaration of War Against Roosevelt, not America. And so the Germans wanted to get out the idea, you're just fighting to save the Jews. So you're somebody from Nebraska, you know, from uh, North Carolina. Why should your sons go and get hurt and wounded and killed to save a bunch of Jews? Why do you want to do that? They wouldn't do it for you. This is a very effective propaganda, get it? It's an extremely effective propaganda. It was the policy of the Allies to try to blunt that. And they kind of succeeded. Because Roosevelt, Churchill, and Stalin, you know, controlled the information, and Hitler only spoke in German, and they kind of arranged matters. This is something that's not so well known. They arranged matters in such a way that during World War II, 
the Germans didn't really get their message across, right? They weren't successful. I mean, you know, the, people, the, the public knew about it in general terms, and there was a lot of anti-Semitism over this issue. We're all fighting to help the Jews. There was. You know, you can read George Orwell about it in England if you want. And, uh, uh, you know, that is true. But Bader Klaub, the Germans, despite their propaganda and Goebbels and all their, uh, you know, apparatus, were not able to get their case made in the Allied countries. It is part of the genius of Roosevelt and Churchill and Stalin in a different way that they were able to control the narrative during World War II. Uh, it might have changed, but they were able to do it. So, for example, I remember when I was a kid in the Vietnam War, the Vietnamese controlled the narrative, not the Americans. They were, t they were stupid. But in World War II, Roosevelt was a genius communicator. He was, and so was Churchill. And they controlled the narrative. So this is not about the Jews at all. You're fighting for freedom. Uh, I could go on and on about this. We were, Churchill, uh, Roosevelt said, that you're, we're protecting Christianity. He did, you know, he says, Hitler wants to replace the cross with the swastika and so on and so forth. So, you know, they, they sold it that way. Uh, that's number one. And number two, Hitler figured if he's able to inflict heavy casualties on the British and the Americans, the public won't stand for it and they'll pull out of the war. And he wasn't wrong about that necessarily. Because America and England, especially America, they can't take heavy casualties. Ah, we got tens of millions of people. Yeah, but it's a free, independent democracy. The public won't put up for heavy casualties. And so the U.S. and Britain in World War II had relatively light casualties. You'd be surprised to hear that because of the way they fought the war. They, they frustrated Hitler's uh, plan to do that. Uh, but that's because the Red Army, the Russians, you know, fought the bloody war and took the casualties. Now, um, the reason I'm mentioning this all is the U.S. didn't want to say this is a war for the Jews. So when news started filtering out, oh, the Jews are being mass murdered, the U.S. government, the British government, was like uneasy. On the one hand, they're opposed to it. On the other hand, if you publicize this too much, it'll sound like it's a war to save the Jews. And it's not a war to save Jews. Because if you do that, the public will say, the heck with it, we don't want a war to save the Jews. You see? And so it's very, very tricky. The American Jewish organizations kind of knew this. And so the non-from organizations weren't quandary what to do. And uh, again, it'll take, if I go into this in too great detail, it'll take me hours and hours. So suffice it to say that clear news that the, the Germans are in the process of killing all the Jews of Europe and doing it in, in a systematic industrial way hit America in a in a clear fashion around Rosh Hashanah time. El to be actually of 1942. And um, the, the Agoda, the Agoda Rabbanim, the other, they got together with all the regular American Jewish organizations. And Stephen Wise was uh, the, the former rabbi, was the leader, and everybody thought he's a great guy. And they said, No, you lead us and go to Roosevelt, and you know, the American government should do something about it. Well, it didn't happen. They did have a delegation to go to see Roosevelt. He bamboozled them, you know. Um, the delegation had all the non-from leadership, and Stephen Wise was the leader. The Agudas Rabbanim sent Rabbi Sorrell Rosenberg, who was the president of Agudas Rabbanim. It wasn't, nothing happened from it, you understand? Because Roosevelt didn't want to have pictures with Jews that only helped Hitler. And he didn't want to come out with a ringing declaration against the Jews, I mean against the persecution, only helped Hitler, he thought. So, whatever the Cheshmans are, meanwhile the Jews are getting screwed, they're getting killed by the millions. So my point is, nobody spoke to anybody, nobody from no big rabbis spoke to anybody in Washington during 1942, which is when most of the Jews were killed. 
So by the time you get to January of 43, I just want to be clear about this. So you already have a million and a half or more killed in 41. You have another 2 million, uh, something like that. I don't know, killed in 42. I mean, a, a lot of people were killed in 42. And the industrial, and Belzec, and Majdanek, and Sabibor, and Treblinka, and Auschwitz, and so on and so forth. You know, because they just moved them in train loads. You know what happened, I don't have to tell you. So, Rova, the Jews were already dead. And then, and by the way, that's by that time the Romanians had killed 400,000 Jews in their chalik that we talked about before. So throw that in. So the, the numbers are crazy, you understand? And it hadn't even registered what's going on with the Jews. Now here you have what's called the reception of science. You know, historians know, a guy makes a discovery, but it doesn't sink into the public for a while. Now today this is accelerated because we live in the, um, in the uh, computer age. But even now with the corona, you know, new information hits, it doesn't really sink into the public for a while. Meanwhile, we walk around with the old information. That's the Mitzvah that was having by the corona, right? That's what Mitzvah what's happening. So this is taken into 43. In the course of 1943, the American Jewish community said, all right, the Germans are killing everybody. What are we going to do about it? They, they got together, this uh, convention and that convention and this thing and that thing, nothing was happening, okay? And... Um, the Zionists want to put a Zionist spin on it, but the others want to put other spin on it by the middle of 43. So that's already, this is terrible. By the time you get to the middle of 43, I mean, there's nobody left in Poland, you know what I mean? And they're gone. Uh, they're, they're all dead in Latvia, Lithuania. I mean, not everybody, but Ruba, the 90%, you know, Ruba to Ruba. It's like too late. So by the time it's starting to dawn, we mamish have to do something about this. It was like too late. Uh, now, there was all kind of politics, intra-Jewish politics that got involved. And, uh, you know, the Vatasol was always trying to raise money for their things. The Joint District Commission Committee didn't want them to. They said, we're already doing the job. The Vatasol had, a, had a, you know, was concentrating still at that time on supporting the Yeshiva who were in Shanghai and in, 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 in Soviet Union, who were starving and needed help. But, you know, nobody's talking about saving the six million. And my point is, if you want to get down honestly and dirty, it's too late to save the six million. It's like three, three and a half, four million are dead already. Something like that, you know, something like that. You hear what I'm saying? Those rove of the six million are already gone. The time to do this was to start something active in like 1940, which was beyond the hot of anybody. So listen, this is a tragedy. I guess you say it's Minas Shemayim, but I'm just saying... Nobody was in charge of the mentally hopped the situation. By 43, they did. And then it was felt maybe, once again, if we get the whole American Jewish community behind this and they go to Roosevelt, they can get something done because the Jews have some power. But it wasn't happening. And then they made like a national, I don't, like, I don't want to go into all the details, they figured to have American Jewish Conference to make a national organization to hopefully deal with this effectively. But... They gave the Agoda and the good like one seat, you know, they they um you know, dissed them and the front broke away. And then the question was, what do you do now? So let's say you're you're the Agusra Bun or the Gusisral, who have been, you know, going to the government and trying to get this happen, that happened, and nothing really was happening much. Nothing substantial in terms of saving six million. Well, it's not six million anymore, it's at the most two million and less than that actually. Because by the time you're in forty three 
the only place left in Europe where there were large Jewish populations was Hungary and uh, Romania and Bulgaria, right? Uh, in Bulgaria was 50,000. In Romania was 400,000 approximately. And in Hungary, it was a lot. You know, it was like 800,000, 750,000. So that's already a population. What did I just say? Seven or four, that's like a million point two, a million point three. That's a chalik. That's a big part. Lithuania's gone. A Poland is gone. Belarus is gone. The Ukraine, for the most part, is gone. See, it was already wiped out. It's terrible. And now it's 43. And, and the second half of 43, what are we going to do? So the uh, Guda and the Guda Rabbanim, they got, you know, sick and tired of, of, of working through the federations. It's nothing really happening over there, although they needed their money and help all the time. So like I say, I'm oversimplifying. And so what they said was like this. Let's hook up with the Jabotinsky guys. There was the Bergson group. There were, there were Zionist activists who were who were rebels against the federations. And Stephen Wise and the federations and the establishment hated them. This is a Peter Bergson or Hillel Cook was his name. And these guys did a different route. They already started in 42. Let's take this to the... They said like this. You're all afraid that the guy will become anti-Semitic. We believe the opposite. We believe if you bring this to the attention of Goyim, they will not, the Goyim, I say, they will not become anti-Semitic, but rather they'll become sympathetic to the Jewish situation. So you had just a completely different reading of the Goyim mentality, and these guys didn't listen to what the regular organization said, and they started their own organization and PR campaigns, and they're very effective. They bought, uh, you know, front page in the New York Times and things, you know, big ads, and they basically say, Hitler's killing 6 million. What are you going to do about it? Every day more people getting killed. FDR, how many Jews did you kill today? You know, words like that. And they made uh, propaganda, and they made pageants, and uh, uh, shows, and things like this. In other words, they applied a Hollywood approach to bringing this message to the American public. Now, the regular Jews said, don't do this. You're going to cause anti-Semitism. You're making things worse. Who authorized you anyway? It was a very bitter um, uh, split among the American Jewish leadership. And these guys, they said, the heck with you, and they lobbied Congress on their own, and whatever, and they got a certain sympathy. Let me just tell you an example. And this is just one of many stories. They went to people who nobody thought were like Jews. They went to William Randolph Hearst, they went to Herbert Hoover, you know, these are ultra-right-wing Republican types, and they said, listen, six million Jews, we're trying to do something about it, will you help us? And they said, we will help you, <laughs> Right? Because just because somebody says, I don't want a Jew living next door to me doesn't mean I'm in favor of killing six million men, women, children. And William Randolph Hearst, who had like a thousand newspapers, he said, you can have all the free ads you want. You hear that? All the free ads you want. And Herbert Hoover and, and people like that. It's, an, it's a story by itself. I don't have time to go into it now. <clears throat> the impact it has on us is one of these PR stunts they thought of to bring this to the public was, let's get a whole bunch of uh, Orthodox rabbis who look the type, you know, like from European, and come to Washington, D.C. and go to see FDR. They didn't have an appointment. You get it? Because if they look for an appointment, Roosevelt would put them off. He was always putting off these things. They didn't have an appointment, and even when he met with them, you know, Rav Herzog got to see him because he was the chief rabbi of Palestine. So he gave him 15 minutes, 20 minutes, and he smiled and said everything. He didn't do, he didn't do anything. So these guys just say, well, go through the front door of the White House. And they came there, it was like an Aserah Semechub of um, September 43, October 43. This is the famous march of the 300, 400 rabbis. 
Uh, so they got all these uh, them together as a PR stunt. You know, that's clearly they said we're doing it for a PR stunt. This will get in the in the papers, and it'll bring the the situation and Jews to the public because Roosevelt doesn't want to talk about it, and the newspapers don't want to talk about it, and the public doesn't want to talk about it, and the Jewish organizations aren't really doing anything about it. Maybe this will shake things up, and uh, so it's a famous incident. Maybe you've heard of it, and I think. You can Google it and see the movie of it. They, they, they took a video of it. Because remember, it's a PR stunt. They wanted to be in the movies. And, you know, at that time, you used to see the news in the movie theaters. And so you see all these rabbis. And uh, Relazer Silver is there. And uh, Rabbi Gold and all the rest of it. So 300 uh, or 400, it's not clear. They came to Washington, D.C. They left the train station. They walked to the Congress. Uh, they they um, stood on the uh, Capitol steps. They met with the Vice President and the Speaker of the House and this kind of stuff. And they read a petition, and then they went to uh, the Lincoln Memorial, and then they went to the to the White House. A delegation of them went to the White House. Roosevelt heard about it and left the White House that day. Went somewhere else. Didn't want to meet with them. It's a, and his famous that's a big diss. You see, they were really angry. Uh, no, he he uh, he really uh, snubbed them. And uh, this actually affects me because one of the rabbis that were there was Rabbi Hertzberg, who started my show. The reason he started the show was because he was a rabbi in another show in Baltimore. When he came back, he cussed out Roosevelt on Yom Kippur's speech. This is 1943. You don't say nothing against Roosevelt in America because to the Jews, he's the one leading the war against Hitler, which was true. And him and Morgan say, you know, they're fighting the war against Hitler, which was true. And therefore, don't don't rock the boat. And since they fired him, he made his own show, and that's where I am today. But Ramosha Feinstein was there, for example. I, nobody's ever given me a list of who was there, but there are a lot of rabbis there. And what turned what started as a PR stunt actually turned into something of of real uh, pathos. It's a, that's a whole I could do a, a talk about that itself. What started as a shtick just didn't turn out not to be a shtick at all. But as a result, the from because of Bunham and all these people, they said the heck with the Federation, the heck with everybody else, the heck with Roosevelt. We gotta notice we have to go and lobby for ourselves. So. It's at this time, in late 43, because what I happened was the Yom Kippur time. So it's after, sometime after Sukkot. In late 43, the Frum, like the the Godesi Israel, the Godesi Rabbanim especially, the Frum said, we got to, we can no longer, you can't rely on the Jewish federations, you can't rely on the others, we have to do our own work for ourselves. And that is when, Rabbi uh, Abram Kalmanovich, and he was the main a- activist in all this, you know, for, who set up the Mary Sheba later in Brooklyn. Rabbi Abram Kalmanovich, who really was very active in the Hatzalah stuff, and already since the be- beginning of the war was always trying to, you know, write to the Pope and meet with this official and that official. Didn't get much done, but he, he, he gave it a, a big uh, try. So this is when, in light of everything I said, he said, we got to go to Morgan South. That's the only guy. There's nobody in the Roosevelt administration will give us the time of day. You can always get a meeting with the State Department, but nothing will happen. Roosevelt won't even meet with you. What do you want? The War Department, the other department? They say, get out of our way. We're trying to fight the war. We're helping you Jews by killing, by destroying Hitler. We don't have time for this other stuff on the side. Now, what did they want? If you look, let me let me find this here. Hold on for a second. If you want, I mean, I'm going to read this to you just because it's interesting. This is um, the petition that these uh, 300 rabbis had for Roosevelt that they never got to to give to him. And I'm doing this for a reason. 
Now you can find this all in the Hapardis. Hapardis used to be like the trade journal for the Rabbanim. So they have a whole report on this. It's not too detailed, but they give you the basic idea where they went, where they dive Minchin in O of Shalom, Shalom in Washington, and so forth. So uh, it's called Bakoshes Rabbanim La Nasi Roosevelt. Lehod Malas Nasi Arzos Abris, Frank and Roosevelt Yishmeri Hashem. B'Shem Hashem Yisbarach Bari Olam Shetziv Olenu B'Torah Kedusha L'Usam Al Dam Reicha Ni Hashem. Since it says in the Torah L'Usam Al Dam Reicha, Hin and Nukarim B'Tzar Lano Kemel Sheishman Be Called to the Lord B'Kol Barom Nishma Called to Me Achenu Nafshas Nekim L'Alfei Yeravovas Yolam Hatzilu Right Anachnu Eich Nuchalamud L'Spal Biyom Kadosh How Can We Daven in Yom Kippur B'Yadin Kumid When We Know We're Sitting Here and the Others Are Getting Killed and We're Not Doing Anything Lachin Bonu Be'Er V'Yom Az Achi Kadosh Belave Nishbar Levakish Meitcha Hanasi Roosevelt Ona Yakshi B'Yashmi L'Ankas Achinom Mefarfrim Benachim B'Amavos Help the Jews who are dying as we speak, right? They're mafarpin benachim amavos. Do something, Mr. President. And what do you want, lemaisa? Okay, Michelle Zon and all the rest. And now I want to get to the lemaisa ports, which were seven. Okay, now bischashi matzam yuchin chov kadosh lechaz b'emtzayim nevratzim. In this situation, it's absolutely necessary. It's a chov kadosh to take the following measures to stop the killings. Number one, lim so derech hatzolat kufa. To do all that's possible to stop the Germans from killing the Jews. Well, that's dumb. <laughs> Whatever that is. Number two. Tell the Germans that they will be held responsible. <clears throat> okay? That they will be held responsible. Okay. I mean, that's that's a good idea. <coughs> Maybe that'll discourage some from keeping up with the Holocaust. Number three. Do all you can to send food through ships and the Red Cross to the Jews in the ghettos. That's not going to happen in the middle of World War II. Number two. Number four. Lifnos lashpi al arzas neutralis persuade the neutral countries to take in Jewish uh, escapees. The neutral countries like South America, they're not going to let in any Jews. 1940, in it, all the countries didn't want the Jews in there. This is the sad part. Let in the Jews into America. Again, I repeat, that was not going to happen. Is there, there were laws in this country, and Roosevelt wasn't going against that. Open up Israel, Palestine. The British weren't going to allow that. And finally, now, of all this thing, the seventh is Lamaisadik. Right? To set up a government agency which is dedicated to helping the Jews save the, escape the Holocaust. That's something. Here you are, government. What can the American government do to help the Jews in Europe? And I repeat, most of them were already dead by the time we told me October 1943, I'm sorry to say. So what can you do? So whatever the American government's going to do, who's going to do it? The State Department? The, the War Department? Who's going to do it? The American ways, and every bureaucratic way is, you set up an agency with, with that mission. So we want to, we want to set up a special department in the American government. So that was a Lamaisa Dika thing. Now, as I said, Roosevelt didn't accept any, he didn't meet him at all. 
So after Sukkot, you find Rabbi Kalmanovich, and this is the best as I understand it. You know, there's a lot of lies and half truths, and like I say, victory has a thousand fathers. It's told in a lot of funny different ways. But the best I know, which is all I can ever share with you, is that sometime in late '43, so Kalmanovich went to was was able to get an appointment with Morgenthau. And that itself was a chiddush because he hasn't met with any of these from things until now, and they never went to him. And when the first news started to filter out in '42 about the six million being killed, as I told you before in '42, Rabbi Stephen Wise, who waited a long time to come out with the news, he wanted to get a hetter from the State Department. It's a long story. He went to Morgenthau and he said, "Listen, I'm going to tell you what's happening." And Morgenthau said at that time, he said, I can't even listen. I'm not saying it's not true. I can't listen. It's going to give me a heart attack. It's going to give me a stroke. It's too It's too painful. And he said, no, I'm going to read it for you anyway. There's the gas chambers. They're killing people. They're burning them. And Morgan said, don't read it to me. You know, I, I, I believe it all. I just can't handle it. Now, a lot of American Jews are like that. Uh, you know, raise your hand if you're the type that you can't watch a Holocaust movie or something like that. Or you can't read about it. I know many people like that. Doesn't mean they don't care. It is personally, it's too much for them. You understand? I grew up in a world of people like that. They don't talk about it, and so on and so forth. It wasn't like that in my family, but you know, I I knew a lot of people that they can't stand to listen to all the details. Okay, so he knew what's happening, and I'll say something else. I forgot that there was an incident, although it 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 sort of pales in comparison. But just, since I was asked to talk about Morgenthau. I'm going to say this. The U.S., if you know your American history, which you probably don't, the U.S. started in Pearl Harbor in December of 42. But we didn't have an army ready to fight the Germans for a long time. And so the first time you had an army ready to fight was in November of 42, and the Americans invaded North Africa. Uh, So they didn't fight the Germans directly. They conquered the Vichy French. This was the French part that supported Hitler. So, to use modern terminology, the Americans conquered, they invaded and conquered Morocco and Algeria. Okay? Now, Morocco and Algeria had been under France and under the Vichy pro Nazi French government. They had concentration camps for Jews there. Not like Hitler's concentration camps, but they rounded up Jews and they had all kind of anti Jewish laws that were on the books for Jews in Morocco and Algeria and Tunisia. Okay? That happened. And had conditions allowed, they would simply would have shipped them off to Auschwitz. Uh, they, were, they wanted to do that. So, when the Americans landed, it's a very complicated story, but they cut a deal with the French general, Admiral Darlan, they were the French commander, and they said, if you don't resist us, we'll leave you in power. Uh, now, this is, uh, you know, you can say it's a good idea or a bad idea, but that's what they did. Eisenhower, that was his first thing when he was a general. <clears throat> they landed in Morocco and Algeria, and there were a lot of French fighting them because the Americans landed as, as conquerors. And he basically said, Eisenhower said um, to this French guy, Admiral Darlan, he said, if you tell your guys not to shoot at us and just agree the Americans should be here, we're not against you. We're not fighting the French. We're not fighting the Vichy French. We only fight the Germans. And we'll leave you in power. And he did. And so you had a situation that now it's November, December 42, and the American army's there and there are Jews being tortured and persecuted by the French authorities. What the hell is that? You understand? Uh, now, 
this was a very delicate situation because the Americans said, listen, don't rock the boat. Uh, this is not going to last forever. Temporarily, the Jews have to be screwed for a while. But it's all part of a general plan that we're going to beat the Germans and drive them out of, of Africa. And then you'll see it'll get better for the Jews. I hear that, and Roosevelt supported that. But Jewish liberals in America, that they didn't like because then the United States Army in an area occupied by America is agreeing to discrimination against the Jews and persecution and torture of the Jews. And Morgenthau blew a gut, and he went to North Africa, Secretary of Treasury, and he raised hell, and he put a lot of pressure on them to back off. And it's a complicated story, and it didn't happen overnight. Eventually, though, that's what happened. The 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 uh, Admiral Darlan was assassinated, and it's a very complicated story, but they put an end to that. You understand? And he went back to a situation where the Jews have civil rights along with everybody else under French control. <clears throat> But it didn't happen overnight. So Morgenthau was very active in that because you could be, that's different. That's Americans acquiescing to this. But it's not the same thing as, 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 as enemy-held territory. So he had a record of caring about Jewish concerns, but in this very narrow American way. And here Rabbi Kalmanovich went to him as a famous story. And he, and he uh, I don't know how he got in to see him, but he got in to see him. And uh, even though he talked Yiddish, he brought, uh, who was it, a, a Weissfogel or somebody like that, to be the translator. And he was crying and crying. And that broke the heart of Morgenthau. You understand? Because basically, so I guess, they're killing the men, women, children. And he gave him all the details. And Morgenthau didn't want to hear it, but he kept going on over there. And he touched his heart. Now, who arranged this? Now I remember. Who arranged this? Morgenthau's secretary. Here's a funny story. When he was a young man, and around 30 years old, he hired a personal secretary, a girl. And she was with him for the rest of his life. Her name was Henrietta Klotz. That's her married name. She married a guy named Klotz. Uh, it's not the name I would pick, but whatever. Uh, and she was his personal secretary. They ran his office before he was secretary of the treasury and during. And she actually came from a from family. Now, she wasn't from. You know, like all the American Jews, they were post-whatever. She came, like, from the Lower East Side or Williamsburg, one of those places. And she reinvented herself to be able to be a, a an American girl, a secretary type that would work for Morgenstern. But he knew he's getting a Jewish secretary from a very Jewish background. And throughout his career, whenever it was possible, she nudged him a little bit in this way. Uh, and she, you know, everyone, every dog has his date. I don't, I don't know the exact circumstances, but she's the one who said, you should see this rabbi. Um, and uh, this really like pushed him over the edge. Because basically, Rabbi Abram Kalmanovich was appealing to his guilty conscience. That's what happened. He was appealing to guilty conscience. And Morgenthau was not a guy to hide his Jewishness in the, in, in the way of self, self-hating, self-denying Jewish. But his career was such in which he didn't want to emphasize the Jewish side. But how can you not be overwhelmed by the, the the magnitude of this tragedy. And that's what Rabbi Kalmanovich got over to him. He said, listen, they're killing everybody. And there's m millions left or whatever he told them. You have to understand, by the way, people didn't know all the details. Do you know at the end of the war, they they they, they asked the government to go and liberate Rabbi Khanum Wasserman and who was it? And I think the Devar of Rome or something like that. They didn't know they were dead. You see? Uh, Avram Grzynski, yeah. The, the Mashkir from the Slobodki Yeshiva. They asked the government, can you help us bring them out of Russia? 
They've been killed by Hitler long before. What you and I know from books today, the, the information wasn't out there. And so Kalmanovich got to Morgenthau, and he assembled his team. Now, he had put together a very... One of the things about Morgenthau, he was a good administrator, as I told you before, he gathered around him a whole bunch of experts, and the Treasury Department was run pretty well during his time by this uh, experts, known as by his staff, which is a way, you know, to operate and get a good staff. So he had people working for him. He had Jews and non-Jews. So um, this meeting with Kalmanovich, you know, really triggered him. And he said to his staff, he says, you know, we got to do something about this. But I know Roosevelt's not crazy about this. What should we do? And it was hard for him because he knew Roosevelt doesn't want to listen about it. His own staff, who are not Jewish, they bucked him up. They said, you know, you should go for this. You know what I'm saying? These are going. It's, it's no secret. Josiah Du Bois, uh, John Pelly, you know, uh, what was the other guy's name? I mean, you know, there was a whole bunch of people who, were, I repeat again, were not Jewish. See, this is the tragedy. Roosevelt represented the cynical side. If someone would appeal to the idealistic side of the Americans, I think most people would agree that, w that this country would have done more for the Jews. But, you know, we'll never know. You know, Hitler may have exploited. It's impossible to tell. But what happened was that as a result of this meeting, um, he was, like, energized to get into this. Now, he himself, when, when Kalmanovich was there, he was crying and crying, and the stories he passed out um, from, from uh, what do you call it? From emotion. He fainted. And uh, Morgan said I had a high blood pressure. He said, that's it. My, my blood pressure went through the roof and he ran away to his private office and he laid down there with a migraine headache for a long time. Because, uh, you know, this is not something he wanted to deal with. Although he recognizes something he has to deal with. And um, as a result, he, you know, he gathered the staff in the Treasury Department and he said, what can we do about this? You understand? And uh, once they're, you know, once he put the professionals of the Treasury staff these are high-level government experts. They go be mine in the Sugya. So uh, they saw the State Department was cheating everybody. And Breckenridge Long, and you know, the, the, the sad story of the discrimination against the Jews. And that the government is sort of systematically always poo-pooing and down, down, putting down any uh, effort to get the public message out there, what the Germans are doing. And um, uh, they said, listen... You know, we should do something about it. So they handled it in a Washington, D.C. way, which was the right way to handle it. Uh, the staff drew up a report uh, in which they told the facts. And uh, the staff report was called, like, the acquiescence of this government in the murder of the Jews. And so that way, they have, he, he, he will um, then, Morgenthau will then go in to see Roosevelt, who wasn't crazy about this, as you know, and say, listen, you and I know each other. This report is going to blow. You're going to tell Roosevelt, here's a report for you to read. And if this gets out, uh, it'll be very bad politics for your administration because it's 1944. Uh, it's the beginning. It's the end of 43, beginning of 44. It's election year. Um, he knew that Roosevelt wants to run for a fourth term, and which he did do any one. And uh, you don't want to be part of, of, of a narrative that said that you're cruel and hard-hearted and so forth. Now, uh, so the report was written up, and 
what the report said was like he gave a great deal of thought what to say in this meeting. And he said they should set up a government agency like the, he didn't use the words like the Bada Rabbanim, like the Agudas Rabbanim said, uh, but that's what it was. You see, you need a government agency that's dedicated to deal with this problem. Uh, and it worked. Uh, so he went to see Roosevelt, and basically he said, like Queen Esther, Kasher Avadati Avadati, you have to give him credit. You know, he did say that. And Roosevelt, you know, didn't want to lose votes. He wasn't crazy about this idea, but he acquiesced. And as a result, he set up the WRB, the War Refugee Board, which in 1944, most of the Jews were dead. But I just told you before, you had the Jews in Hungary and, and Romania. And so when they set this up in, in January of 44, or maybe it was February, Hitler had not yet invaded Hungary. Uh, but he did the following month. And so then it became a question like this. What about the 700, 800,000 Jews, whatever it was in Hungary? And what about the 400,000 Jews in Romania? And the uh, 40, uh, 50,000 Jews in Bulgaria? You know, those, the, the share, literally, literally the shares up like them. There was like 15, 20,000 Jews left in Slovakia. What about the Sheiris Hapleta? And um, the War Refugee Board, uh, which was run, by the way, by one of Morgenthau's Geisha deputies by John Pelly. In other words, the Treasury experts were the ones who set up the system and they didn't have an easy time. They weren't 100% successful, but all of a sudden you had a, a government agency which is dealing full-time with the Jewish question, even though they wouldn't give the title of the Jew board, but the War Refugee Board. And that led to a whole bunch of adventures in the Agudas Rabbanim, the Agudas Yisrael, the Barat Sol, and all the others, and, and other groups we're in constant contact with this group. Now you have a, an address. You don't waste your time with the State Department. You don't waste your time with the White House. You know, you have a government agency that's there. And how successful were they in saving the one and a half million Jews or whatever it was left? The answer is somewhat. You understand? Because they immediately send out messages to the Pope and they send out messages to the governments that if you help with the, uh, hurt the Jews, we're going to get you. They were somewhat successful. Half the Jews in Hungary were killed in 44. You know, once Hitler invaded Hungary and they set up the uh, constant, you know, the, the, the ghettos and sent people to Auschwitz, hundreds of thousands of Hungarian Jews were killed. But on the other hand, hundreds of thousands were not. In Romania, because of the politics in Bulgaria, more were saved. So in other words, they made an impact, but I want to be very clear, it was late in the day. Uh, four million, maybe more than four, maybe five million, whatever, were already dead. You see what I'm saying? So it's a tragic situation. Um, did Morgenthau meet with the Rabbanim afterwards? I don't think so. Uh, I remember reading in the Urban Boonen book that he met with Byron Cutler or something like that. I don't know anything about that. You know, maybe he did, but there's no point. Uh, I, I, no, you don't have to meet Morgenthau anymore. He did what you wanted, which was he set up this group, this this agency. Uh, maybe the agency asked him for help sometimes with the State Department giving him trouble. But, but Derek Klaw, the person you want to deal with, is the War Refugee Board, and they did. And that's, like I say again, the Agudas Yisrael, the Agudas Rabbanim, the Joint Distribution Committee, they had all kinds of schemes that I don't want to go into now. You can read the Recha Sternbuch book and you get some of the ideas. They're, they were trying, because the Germans are mamzerim, as you know, and down to the end of the war, they're playing fast and loose. And, you know, there was the Eichmann, the case where you did the, the, the trucks for, for blood, all kinds of schemes. Some worked, some didn't work. Overall, 
the Holocaust really came to an end only when the Americans took over Germany. And down to the last minute, my father was part of this, down to the last minute, the Germans were shooting and killing and starving Jews. So it's not like, you know, they have a change of heart as a result of everything. But having said that, if you look, if you're Mayan in the Sugya, they were able to save thousands of Jewish lives. It is true. They were able to save thousands of Jewish lives. Compared to the six million, it's a drop in the bucket. So notice if they would have a WRB, maybe beginning of 42 or 43, by 43 is late. If they would have such a thing at the beginning of 1942, Ulai Efsher, they might have it might have helped save substantially more Jews. So this is, as I understand it, the significance of the Morgenthau. You see? That late in 43, Leonard Kalmanovich met with him and appealed for a tachlis, you know, something specific, which was make a government agency that'll be dedicated to helping, you know, so we'll have an address to go with, and the American government will then be able to use its influence in the right way. That was an idea that he could sell to Roosevelt. That was That's a, a, a practical kind of way. To say, open up the country and land in six million Jews, or have them, that wasn't going to happen. Not in World War II. And Roosevelt himself didn't want the Jews coming in the country. I mean, let's put it that way. There was a thing at Fort Oswego, but, you know, it, didn't, didn't, it, it, it wasn't real. And as they say, all this happened late in the day. It's, a, it's, it's very sad, of course. Uh, now I'm going to tell you a funny story. It's not funny. You know, Kalmanovich, if you remember him, I was a very little kid when he died. I, I actually saw him once in whatever, in, in Brooklyn. Uh, he was a Hebron by nature. And when he passed out, Morgan said, he almost fainted. He ran to the other room. He said, I'm about a blood pressure attack. And he, and he ran out of the room. Uh, and then Kalmanovich got up and said to the guy, I think it was Robert Weisfogel, Tim in English, said, did I do a good job fainting? No, it was a lie. It was a fake. <laughs> you know? He was an actor. And they said all in Yiddish, so they, didn't, they figured the secretary doesn't understand them. Right? And um, what he called? And Kamarnu. Morgenthau, listen to the end of the story, went on to stay with Roosevelt to the end of Roosevelt's time. Roosevelt died in April 45. He expressed his hatred of the Germans, because he hated them, by drawing up what he called the Morgenthau Plan, which was to wipe out Germany after the war, or at least wipe out their, their industry and make Germany a poor country after the war. And Roosevelt agreed with that. Roosevelt said the Germans should eat, eat two bowls of soup a day for the rest of their lives to realize what they did. You understand? In other words, not because Roosevelt loved the Jews, but because he hated the Germans, which is just interesting. Okay? Uh, but that's what happened. When Truman came in after Roosevelt, they, they got rid of it. For a while, they tried to implement the Morgenthau Plan, but then America, for its own reasons, I don't blame them, said, we actually have to build up Germany because you can't have a European economy without a strong German economy, which turned out to be the truth. So Germany did not really suffer after World War II. You know, America built them up. I think you know that. Uh, when Truman became president, him and Morgenthau was a wrong combination. And within a short time, Morgenthau was out. They had a bad chemistry. Because Morgenthau's whole messias depended on his personal friendship with Roosevelt, which was very close, right? In spite of this Jewish stuff, they continue to be very close friends. I don't know what would happen if Roosevelt would have stayed present. There certainly wouldn't be a state of Israel, and that would have been a whole thing by itself, but it didn't matter because Roosevelt died right away at the beginning of his third term, a fourth term. Morgenthau is in the 40s, 
having come into contact for the first time in a real way with Orthodox Jews, with Jewish Jews, all the rest of it, once he left office, and remember, he's a millionaire, he doesn't have to work. So he actually got involved more in Jewish affairs, uh, which is interesting, and he became pro-Israel, and he helped the Zionists set up the state of Israel, and he visited Israel. I have a photograph at home. Uh, I mean, in the, I have a book on the uh, Hebrew biography of Rob Herzog. You see Herzog with Morgenthau, and Herzog Sukkah, Morgenthau's a yarmulke. It's like a shock, because he visited Israel in 48 or 49 and all this kind of stuff. But, but, his wife died. Uh, she always had a bad heart. If, it was, if she didn't have heart trouble, she would have blocked him from helping the Jews. She was that type of person. When his wife died, he married a guy. A French lady who had been married to a, a Jew. She was Catholic. And it was a bad, you know. He went, she again took him away from all Yiddishkeit. So for a short period of his time, lifetime, he connected with his Jewish self. Now I'm going to tell you the funny story. So he was for a while attending the UJA dinners, you know, as one of the big machers. And I forget, around 1950, 51, 52, something like that, there was a UJA dinner, and Rabbi Kalmanovich was there, you know, to get some money from the Federation. And his secretary, Henrietta Klotz, uh, was also there, and Morgenthau was there, and she brought the two of them together. Oh, I remember you, I remember you, this, that, and the other. And then Henrietta Klotz started speaking to Kalmanovich in Yiddish, which Morgenthau didn't understand. And she said, you know, you should be ashamed of yourself. It's a good thing it was me in the room because I saw you faked him out. And if I would have told him that you pretended to faint, the whole thing would have fallen apart. You understand? It's a good thing that it was me and I didn't I didn't tell on you. You know, there was this, a, a shtick on your part. And Rabbi Kalmanovich said to her in Yiddish, he says, Taka, why didn't you tell on me? And she said, if you knew my parents were, he wouldn't ask that question. Because I told you, she came from a very firm family. She wasn't from it, but it was there. So it's just an interesting human story. So he ends up spending the rest of his life just as an ex-secretary of the Treasury. He didn't do anything substantial. And he's married to a non-Jewish woman. So, you know, he kept saying, we should have wiped out Germany. We should have wiped out Germany to the end of his life. He died in 67. All right. But that's just a, uh, what's the right word? It's an eccentricity. So as far as the Jewish side is concerned, it's a real shame. If he would have married Henrietta Klotz, and she was in love with him, she wouldn't have married him, then he would have spent the rest of his life much more involved with Judaism. I will never say he would come from, you know, that's going too far, but at least he would have connected. Let's put it this way, he had a Pentelian for sure, but it's a tragedy of the assimilation that it leads even good people, and I think he was a good person, to battle against the Eitzertov, you understand? Or, you know, I don't know how to put it, to, to, to not connect with the Pentelian. It's, it's, it's actually a very interesting Jewish story. And he steered close and then drove away. Uh, maybe he married the woman because he was too afraid of getting too close with his Jewish roots. I don't know. How can, how can you know a thing like that? So he comes out to be an interesting figure, in some ways tragic, in some ways noble. Um, altogether, the Holocaust is what it is. And like I say, all these efforts came too late. Uh, by late 43, when the first meeting happened, you know, it was too late. Well, it's not too late if you're Hungarian or Romanian, you know. But all the Jews in Poland, Lithuania, were all dead. Ruba de Ruba. But I shouldn't say that because every Jew counts. So you can, you know, you can say like that. 
So it, it's a story. Now, from this I've seen, Rabbi so-and-so went there, and the other one went there, I heard the Baron Cutler fainted, and this, that, and the other, you know, and they cussed out Morgenthau, and they say, you're ashamed of being Jewish. I don't think any of these stories are true. I could be wrong. I mean, I wasn't there. I, could, I think what happened is you build up a legend, everybody pads onto it. That's my understanding of it. Uh, and he, so he played an important role at the moment, but ever since then, he'd been used, as far as I can see, as kind of a foil in Orthodox historiography. Um, so that itself is is an interesting tale. But listen, you know, that's who we are. Anyway, I've given it a shot. And with that, I wish you all good Shabbos. And I, once again, I wish a special good Shabbos to Sam Finkel in Israel. And that's it. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.